0: This is number 3 in our series of Bible studies into Acts 2.38, which gives the three-point step-by-step formula for receiving salvation. Repent, and be baptized every one of you for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, is what Peter said, Acts 2 and verse 38. We've covered repentance rather completely, I think, in the very first of this series, and also water baptism, which by its very name means to be plunged into or to be immersed. Most people don't really think about repentance as being a terrible, horrible burden of guilt as a result of breaking God's laws. For the simple reason most people are not familiar with God's laws, they know very little about it, they've never been told what is sin. They've never looked through the Bible, they've never heard in 20, 30, 40 years of church going that sin is the transgression of the law. They don't seem to know that while all crime is sin, by no means is all sin a crime. For example, one could work all of his or her life for 40, 50, 60 years on the Sabbath, breaking God's Sabbath day every single week with alacrity. They could ignore the annual Holy Days, be completely ignorant of them, and be working on every single one of the annual seven. They could absolutely know nothing about the Lord's Supper, formerly the Passover, know nothing about the Days of Unleavened Bread, be out working or partying or whatever. A person can hate with every bit of virulence and human anger and resentment that they are possibly capable of, and are never arrested. But they are breaking God's law, according to Jesus Christ who lifted the Ten Commandments to a spiritual plane and who magnified the Ten Commandments to make them reach into every little nuance of human thought and human emotion so that the Ten Commandments as applied by Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount and by all of His life's example and His life's teaching are far more binding than the Ten Commandments in the letter. Look at all those ways in which people sin and break God's laws and do not take it seriously. For example, a Saint Christopher dangling from the rearview mirror in many an automobile or on the dashboard. All kinds of idols that people have, the matinee idols as they used to be called, people actually worship, they will stalk to get close to famous and uh, infamous people. They will run around ogling at other people and literally are guilty of idolatry if they do. People can disparage their parents, speak ill of them, curse them, talk down to them, ignore them. And they are breaking God's commandment, honor thy father and thy mother, but they're never arrested. Spouses can hate one another, scream and yell and use profanity, breaking God's laws, but they are never arrested or seldom. And so there are so many ways in which, especially take the uh, commandment against coveting, thou shalt not covet. And then it lists all the things that people generally covet. Your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's possessions, somebody else's thing, somebody's land or property, somebody's success, somebody's business. Even his horse, his racing horse, or his cattle, his herd of black Angus. And someone can sit around and in their minds and hearts just be desperately desirous of getting their hands on that property or that house or that woman or whatever, and they're never hauled off to jail. Now that's the point I want to make, because very few people take repentance of of breaking God's laws, repentance toward God for breaking God's Ten Commandments, as they are spiritually applied, seriously. Most people, because they have not robbed a bank and they have not murdered anyone, most people, and all they've done is maybe be in a bad attitude here or hated somebody, or maybe when they were a kid they cheated on their test in school, or maybe as a little boy they ran away with a handful of marbles out of the five-and-dime store. They used to have five-and-dime stores. They don't don't anymore. And so they begin to think, well, I smoked or I drank or I caroused or I honky-tonked or I did this and that, and they repent of that. But they have never really come to understand, which I hope I covered thoroughly enough so that you understand it now as we get to part three, that even breaking God's Sabbath day is tantamount to murder. That it is the very same thing. The wages of sin is death, as we covered very, very thoroughly. It is given to all men to die once, as we covered. After this, the judgment. So the first death, no matter how it comes, whether in an accident, old age, or whether by fire, a horrifying way to die, that horrible earthquake that has taken so many lives in Turkey and we think of the one a few years ago that took 20,000 lives in Mexico City. Horrible, horrible ways in which human beings perish. But this is not the penalty for sin. The penalty for sin is to be burnt, to be completely destroyed in Gehenna fire. So when one repents, one needs to repent of having broken God's laws. And the only way you can do that is to understand what they are, that they were in effect long before Moses. Otherwise, it could not have said that the men of Sodom in Genesis 13, 13 were sinners exceedingly before the eternal. I used to have my second year Bible class in Ambassador College conduct a little project where in a couple of sessions or so we would have volunteers from the class of about 60 or 80 or whatever were there, and each one of them would try to come up with a, an example in the Bible using only Genesis 1 to Exodus 19 of sin, of the breaking of every single one of the ten points of God's law. And when we really got to looking at that, many of them are generic and broadly applied. For example, in Genesis, Uh, The 26th chapter and about the 5th verse, I believe, where Abraham was subject and obeyed God's commandments, his statutes, his judgments, and his laws. And there are so many other examples that we can prove absolutely that the 10 commandments of God were extant, were in existence, and were known even by pagan kings long before the giving of the law at Sinai. And so many millions of people think the law came into existence at Sinai, but even then if they understood that the one who wrote those tables of stone with his own finger is the one we know of as Jesus Christ of Nazareth, it would knock into the proverbial cocked hat many of the mainstream fundamentalist doctrines, especially those having to do with law and grace. As if Jesus Christ was the smart aleck young man, as my father used to put it, who came along and looked at all these horrible old laws that his father had implemented and said, oh, well, I'm going to get rid of those. And so he took a stepladder and he went up there to the cross and he had these nails in his mouth and he took them out and he took this scroll or these tablets and he just hammered them to that old cross up there. A lot of people have this idiotic notion that Christ nailed the Ten Commandments to the cross. Well, in the first place it was not a cross, but an upright pail with a patibulum, or the board over it, that said, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And His hands were pinioned directly over His head, it's called a tree several times in the Bible. And it was on a stauros, or a stake, which is the Greek word that has no etymological connection whatsoever with the Latin word crux, there is no connection between them whatsoever. And he died because we have broken the Ten Commandments of God in all of their application and every nuance of human activity, including human thought. And people simply do not understand that. Now, if you are one who is repenting, who wants to repent, who has repented, who has studied into this and come to understand what an effrontery to God all of us are in our natural carnal state, which is enmity against God, and is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be, Romans 8.7. And that the human heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things, Jeremiah 17 9. Who can know it? I the Eternal search the reins, I try the hearts, God says that our thoughts are not His thoughts, that His thoughts are higher than our thoughts, than the heaven is above the earth. If we finally come to understand this and we do not calculate the misdeeds of our life in man's terms, but in God's terms, and we understand what sin really is, then we look into the deep spiritual significance of wading into, whether it's a large bathtub or whether it's a, cattle, pond, or whether it's a lake or a river, doesn't matter. Just where there's sufficient water to completely cover our body, and that we are laid down in that watery grave for just a second, a count of maybe one, two, and right back up out of it, that we are plunged into or immersed underwater as a symbol of the death of the old self, the burial of the old self with all of its sins, the washing away of all those sins in the water and the emergence from the water as if in resurrection, as we covered extensively in part number two, to walk or to live in newness of life. Now, once we have accomplished that, God has to provide a miracle to even unlock our minds to help us accomplish part number one, repent. Because repentance is a gift of God, it is granted of God, It takes a miracle from God to open a human mind, to break that concrete, steely resistance and hard-headedness and stiff-necked human rebellion, to make a human being come to himself or herself, to want to broken-heartedly seek God and say, I have been a horrible sinner. I want to have my sins washed away. I want to repent. That takes a miracle from God. None can come to the Son except the Spirit of the Father draw him," said Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Even our repentance is not something we do of and by ourselves. The Holy Spirit is with us, working with us, leading us, guiding us, bringing us to the place of repentance. Then we must make the decision to go seek out a minister or a counselor, a representative of God's church. and. He or she has no right. Now, she could counsel a woman, I suppose, but primarily the ministry consists of men and women are not to preach in God's true church. We understand that. But nevertheless, when counseling for baptism is conducted, the one who is doing the counseling, as I'm pretty sure I covered, need not delve into every little thing or deed or thing that someone is confessing, and I I probably said in passing, I hope I did, that one can look up in Hefere's church councils and discover what are the origins of the Catholic confessional booth and why it is that they have those little slats there so that the priest and the penitent cannot come into physical contact with each other. I won't belabor that except to say that oftentimes there are people, and I've seen this in the history of God's church in the last 40 some years who tend to get a little bit of vicarious pleasure out of getting people to confess their secret and innermost sins and problems, and that should never be done. The only question that should be asked of you when you're ready to wade into that baptismal pool is, have you repented of your sins? End of story. It's before God that you are doing this, not before man. You repent before God. All sin is against God, ultimately, even though some sins hurt other human beings. All sin is against God. David prayed, "...against thee and thee only have I sinned," even in the case of Uriah the Hittite and Bathsheba. "...against thee and thee only have I sinned," said he in Psalm 51. Now we come to Acts 2.38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, the breaking of God's Ten Commandments, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit." This is not a doctrine. It's not merely exegesis of Scripture. It is not merely something that you study and you put down notes in a Bible. How many people have ever thought of this as in the same way that they might think of a visit by a UFO in their backyard with beings from outer space getting out and communicating with them, and giving them an opportunity to be the very first earthling to be taken up into their space vehicle. Something like this, something generically like, for example, you have the potential with your human spirit to become a child of space. Let me put it that way. Almighty God is the God of the universe. The creating agent, the Logos, who was Theos, John, the first chapter, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Study John 1 with Hebrews 1, that He is the stamped express impress, or the exact character, the replica, as it were, of the Father. Christ said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father that dwelleth in me, He doeth the works. If you really think of it in that way, it becomes a little bit breathtaking, a little bit awesome, a little bit overwhelming, that you have the potential to become a child of space. I mean by that, that you have the potential with your human spirit to receive the begettal, the generation of life, the conception, if you will of a new spirit being which will be begotten inside the frontal lobes of your human physical brain that merely is matter and weighs about eight pounds. But there is a human spirit in connection with your brain which has no separate conscious life apart from the brain but is said to be deeply asleep once the brain dies. When the brain dies, the spirit is said to be deeply asleep. Them which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him, and so on. And in 1 Thessalonians 4:13 to 16, the word sleep in Christ or sleep in Jesus mentioned there about three times. So you need to understand that you had an opportunity. I won't get too clinical with this. Just state it in passing, and you will know exactly what I mean. If you understand, any adult does, where children come from and therefore where you came from. And exactly how you got here, physically. You won. You had, they claim, several hundred thousand. Think of that. Potential adversaries. Potential lives that could have been a different child of your parents than you. Right? You know I'm telling the truth. But you won. Here you are. Now, if you think life is good, I know many people have hard lives, but really when you get right down to it, the good parts of life tend to erase a lot of the bad parts. When you think about the wonderful things of life, love and marriage and children, and the many, many wonderful experiences, the beautiful places you've been, the things you've done, the things you've seen, I'm just saying quickly, life is good. It is a great blessing. It is a joy. It's a great gift to have the gift of life and you won. Now, in like fashion, in a spiritual analogy, you have the potential to be begotten of God and to become a new spiritual creation, a new creature that never has been before, that is as utterly unique as you are unique, no one else has your fingerprints, and will never be again. It has one opportunity to move on into the next phase of life where this human life will be less than the batting of an eyelash in 10 million years as measured by eternity. And you have that awesome potential of being begotten of God as your Father. Now when God is your Father, you are His child. And Jesus Christ of Nazareth is called the firstborn among many brethren In 1 Corinthians 15, he's called the first fruits from the dead. And I want to turn to the eighth chapter of the book of Romans and read through it a little bit because this is very deep and profound. There are hundreds of scriptures I could read, of course, about the Holy Spirit. As you're turning there, if you want to open your Bible and go to Romans, the eighth chapter, remember this. Christ said, God the Father is a spirit, and those that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Now, we're into a spiritual dimension here in this discussion, which I say defies human imagination. In a lot of ways, there are areas into which humans try to tread, where angels fear to tread, There are an awful lot of unholy curiosities about who try to get into every kind of analogy and follow it right on down to its ultimate conclusion. And all analogies eventually break down because they are merely a metaphorical story, a comparison, some kind of an example. An analogy is not the truth. It is an example which illustrates an underlying truth. And we are dealing with something that is really beyond our comprehension. Let me give you a couple of possible explanations which might help. You cannot see electricity but you know it is there. When it goes through the little filament in an incandescent bulb, it is flowing circuitously from its source back to that source again, which generates the power. You only have to put your finger, don't do it, into the socket in the wall or the light socket and feel that tremendous flow of just stinging, uh, jolting energy that shocks your body to understand that electricity is great power. So much power that it can absolutely kill you, stop your heart and freeze your brain just like that if you get enough volts of it, the way they try to measure it. But you cannot see electricity. You can only see what it does. You cannot see gravity, but you can feel it. You can't smell it or taste it, but you know what it does. Most of our lives we live completely unaware of gravity. If the Bible had been written during this nuclear age, it would no doubt have used nuclear energy and electricity and various sound waves and some things that we understand now about the movement of the sun's photons to this earth and other analogies to help us understand the spiritual realm. Instead, the Bible uses water as a type of God's Holy Spirit. Rippling brooks, rushing rivers, Out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water, said Jesus Christ, talking metaphorically about good deeds, good thoughts, prayers, cards, visits, food, clothing, shelter, money, help for the poor, uh, gestures of generosity, because human nature is completely changed and the nature of Jesus Christ comes into that new creature instead. It uses the analogy of wind or air when Jesus talked to Nicodemus in the third chapter of the book of John. So shall everyone who is born of the Spirit eventually be. You hear the wind. You don't know where it came from, where it goes, he said. So shall everyone be who is born of the Spirit. In other words, invisible. But wind has tremendous power. Look what the devil did with a tornado to the family of Job when the entire home collapsed on the family and the servants. And Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. We know the roaring wind of a tornado, a hurricane, or a typhoon. So again, you cannot see the mass movement of air, but you can see what it does. You can see the particulate matter and the solid matter that it picks up in a huge black funnel cloud because it has a lot of condensed vapor or a lot of vapor about to condense in it and a lot of stuff it picks up from the ground. So these are analogies that help us understand something that is beyond our understanding, which is spirit. Your mother wasn't aware the second day, third day, or probably even the third week until she began to suspect something and went to the doctor to find out. I'm talking about after the act which brought about conception. There was no further sensation or feeling in her body that led her to believe, I'm pregnant. But she was. Here you are. And so it is, the Holy Spirit of God does not come into your kneecap or your elbow. It does not increase your memory. It doesn't make you a better athlete. It does not, in any manner, shape, or form, manifest itself to you through the five senses. You can't taste it, smell it, feel it, take a photograph of it, touch it. You can't hear it. But the Holy Spirit of God is there nevertheless. At the moment of the laying on of hands by God's chosen representatives, Whether ordained or not, remember that the disciples of John the Baptist baptized, they did not know about the Holy Spirit, but remember that the disciples of Jesus Christ baptized, and some of them didn't know. And even after that time, when Apollos, with Priscilla and Aquila, were actually causing the conversion of many people. They still had not even heard about the gift of the Holy Spirit, and it was not until Peter, James, John, some of the other apostles came and enlightened them about that that they laid hands upon these believers, and then it said they received the Holy Spirit of God. So God decided long ago that He was going to impart His Holy Spirit by human agency with only one exception, and that was at the time of the day of Pentecost when the flaming leaping tongues of fire, as if they were crowns or coronas of fire, settled upon the heads of every single one of the disciples who became apostles, or one sent of Christ. And they began to speak in these foreign languages. Up to 21 or more different dialects were represented there in that huge room. And they heard a roaring wind, because God wanted to get everybody's attention and to manifest His great power. So on that particular unique occasion only, Never before, never after that time, has there been a time when the Holy Spirit has been given en masse to large numbers of people with huge, big, roaring sounds like a roaring wind and with visible fire coming down right out of the ceiling as if materializing out of thin air. Only that time, that one unique time on Pentecost, the birthday of the New Testament church, did that occur. From that time on, when the apostles were ordaining other people. Men have laid hands upon men, who have laid hands upon men, who have laid hands upon men, right on down through the generations, so that when you are still wet with water, probably, and come out of the baptismal font or tank or river or stream, and one or two of the representatives of Jesus Christ and of God's Church are there, and they lay hands upon you, you will not feel anything except their hands. But there is a lot more happening. Because God Almighty, from the power of His Holy Spirit in the one who does the baptizing and the prayer and the laying on of hands, will actually cause, like a current of electricity, which you won't feel, God's Holy Spirit to come into and to actually connect with your human spirit, thus creating, conceiving, if you will, at that moment, a new. Spirit being, a new babe in Christ, a new creature in Christ. Now let's get to some of these scriptures in the book of Romans, the 8th chapter. So then, verse 8, after the one that I quoted to you about the carnal mind is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, you are in the flesh when you are carnal, but you're not, biblically speaking, quote, in the flesh, as he goes on to explain, once you are converted and you have God's Holy Spirit and you're begotten as a child of God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Oh, what is this talking about? You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Now, I have a hand here, which I could lose. Hopefully, I will not, but if some accident, a car door, collision, whatever, should occur, and next year I should have a prosthesis here with a glove on, I would say, well, I lost my hand, but I would be here intact. I would have all of my recollections, all of my knowledge, all of my education. I would have the gift that God has given me of speaking. I would have the knowledge that God has imparted to me of His Word. I would have everything that... I am today, except I would say to you, I lost my hand." Well, as horrifying as it might sound, and I've used this analogy before, people can become quadriplegics. They can actually lose all four limbs. I remember a case where I saw, either on television or in a motion picture years ago, a sad case where a man was actually putting a paintbrush, they put it in his mouth, and he would dip into a palette and actually paint beautiful paintings with the movements of his head, and he had no arms and no legs. So someone could say, I lost my arms and I lost my legs, but the individual is still there because we live here. We live behind the frontal lobes of our forehead in that part of our brain where our decision-making capability lies, where our volition, our free moral agency, our conscience, where our capacity for love and remorse exists, where our personality comes from. Other parts of the brain have to do with the motor function, have to do with the memory. You know, someone could be struck on the back of the head and lose their memory and not even know who they are. But they still can have a great deal of personality. So God's Holy Spirit comes into our brain and connects with our human spirit. There is a spirit in man. Christ said as He died to His Father, Into thy hands I commend my spirit. And that is exactly what happened. Christ died, but in a deep, profound sleep, that spirit in all the accumulated wisdom and knowledge and all the experiences of 33 and one half years tabernacling in human flesh that he had accumulated to be able to take back up to heaven, to sit at the right hand of God the Father on high, to be yours and my daily high priest, that accumulated knowledge was simply asleep, but it was intact. It was there. You might say it was almost like a computer chip that your, your hard drive on your PC had been demolished by a sledgehammer, but the computer chip was there, and you could take it and put it into a new computer, and the old computer is completely wasted and just so much junk, but you crank it up, and lo and behold, all of your files and everything is there. Every little bit of knowledge and memory is still there. Merely an analogy. Now it says, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Verse 9 of Romans 8. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. This is a problem for people who want to believe in the absolute nonsense of the hypostasis which was postulated by some of these characters back in 325 A.D. and has been accepted by the parent of the parent or whatever. Uh, the worldwide who is back straight into the mainstream fundamentalist doctrine of the mystery of three in one and the trinity but there is a north pole and a south pole there is positive and negative magnet magnetic forces there are two sexes there are two nostrils two eyes two ears two hands two legs two arms there are so many evidences throughout all of animal life and even plant life in the creation of Almighty God that there is duality. There was the first man Adam and the second man Adam which is Christ. There's the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. There's God the Father and Christ the Son. Now it says that God is a spirit, and God has a spirit, meaning that God has His power his ability, his energy, that he is able to, by divine fiat, project away from him billions of miles. He is able to project by his spiritual reach through the limits of the universe, if there are limits, which apparently there aren't, and we can't even understand that. Our minds will not comprehend that. But God the Father has a spirit. Now notice, we receive the spirit of God. But it also says, if Christ be in you, And then it says, If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And here's a little bit of the mystery. They are distinctly separate persons of the Godhead, but they are one in purpose, in intent, in belief and doctrine, in their program, in exactly how they think, how they feel about everything that goes on. They are absolutely one. And since Jesus Christ of Nazareth walked in the flesh on this earth, and overcame sin in the flesh, it shows that Christ is to live within us. Now that's an analogy perhaps, but you wonder to what extent there is something here that even most people that think they understand all there is to know about the Holy Spirit of God really comprehend. God the Father begets us, and we are His child. But it goes on to say in verse 10, if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, meaning that the rogues gallery in heaven above that had your name and mine on it prior to that baptism and repentance that said wanted for crimes against God's law, penalty, death. Well, at the time of repentance and when you come up out of the baptismal pool, that rogues gallery, that picture of you, that black mark on the book of life is erased. It is completely gone. It isn't there anymore. And so you are considered dead, but Christ died in your stead. And so the body is considered dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness, because of the righteousness of Christ, because of His perfect example. But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, talking about the Spirit of the Father, then he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwells in you. Now, quicken does not mean to enhance your motor facility. It doesn't mean you're going to walk faster. It doesn't mean you're going to run faster. It doesn't mean you move around more pertly. It means enliven. It's like you were only partly alive. And you can go back to the analogy once again of human conception. The fertile egg is only going to last for a certain window of time and then it's expelled. And of course the spermatozoa, which are imparted by the father, only going to last for a certain period of time and they're expelled. And the absolute vast majority of them, hundreds of thousands to one, never survive. So you as a potential are there and you have a window of opportunity. And if you receive the call to repent and you are baptized and you receive God's Holy Spirit, you have accepted that wonderful opportunity. You've taken advantage of that window of opportunity and you have been begotten as a child of God. He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken, that means enliven, put new life into, spiritual life, your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after or according to the flesh, or the carnal dictates of man, or this society, or Satan's world. For if we live after the flesh, you shall die. That's the ultimate. We all know nothing is surer than death and taxes. But if you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, and the word does not mean humiliate, as we oftentimes misuse it. It means literally kill, put to death. If you, by the Spirit of God, in your mind, begin to absolutely kill out of your appetites, kill out of your way of life, all of those harmful things that you have done before, Sabbath-breaking number one. I cannot imagine anyone going through this process asking God to forgive them of all of their sins and going right out and breaking the Sabbath, which is tantamount to murder. It just cannot be done without aborting and losing salvation. The Sabbath day must be kept. God's annual Sabbaths must be kept. His law must be observed. Now, he said, if we live after the flesh, we're going to die. But if we put to death those evil deeds through the Spirit, we shall live. When you receive the Holy Spirit of God, a dramatic change comes over human nature. The things that used to be important to you are absolutely unimportant. And the things that were unimportant, I know that a lot of people rarely ever looked at the Bible, and now they can't wait to get the Bible, and to get their red pencil, and their notepad there, and to read it, to study it, and think about it. And their entire direction in life takes a dramatic change. Actually, the word, be converted, over in the 12th chapter of Romans, verses 1 and 2, that were to be transformed converted, by the renewing of our mind, that we may prove what is that good and acceptable will of God, is to mean, is to be changed. To repent and to be converted means to be changed, to turn around and to go the other way. He says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. So now the Spirit of God is doing the leading. And it's like you're walking down a pathway, and the lamp that lights the pathway is God's law. And the pathway may be very narrow and dark and rutty and rocky and difficult, areas to climb, as Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount. Broad is the way, brightly lit, that leads to destruction. But narrow and rutty and difficult, S-T-R-A-I-T, straight meaning strenuous, is the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. The love of God is to flow out of your heart and toward other people and the analogy you can use there is that God's law is like a river. The Holy Spirit is like a river that flows in a riverbed and that riverbed is God's law. The Holy Spirit of God will flow through you by your observance of God's law. The last six that tell you how to love your neighbor and the first four that tell you how to love God. And so when you decide to go somewhere to do something make a choice, make a decision, buy something, say something to someone, think a certain thought. The Holy Spirit of God should be out in front, doing the urging, doing the leading, doing the inspiring, guiding and controlling, not your human fleshly appetites. So it says, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, not people who themselves go along and the Holy Spirit trying to catch up. But those who are led by the Spirit of God, where the Spirit of God, the mind of God, the will of God, the example of Jesus Christ, is out in the fore, in the forefront, leading and guiding. They are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. And that is an analogy that applies to every human being in Satan's world and this human physical flesh, those who through fear of death or all their lifetime subject to bondage, as it says, and all the various fears, fear of being looked down upon, fear of being rejected, fear of being said that uh, you're crazy by peers and by family members when you do embrace the truth of God, that can actually be like manacles and handcuffs and like a ball on a chain that drag you through life. You are not receiving the spirit of bondage, again to fear, but you have received the spirit of sonship, as it should read. It's far more than legal adoption. It's like saying, the life that I have, as I'm sitting here talking to you, is a life that was imparted to me by my father. And the receptive, fertile egg in the womb of my mother received that gift of life, And those two lives, my mother's life and my father's life, made a new life, and you're looking at Him. Now the same thing happened in your case. And the spiritual analogy is inescapable. That when your human spirit is receptive to God's Holy Spirit, He imparts that Holy Spirit which creates inside of you a new spiritual life. Not just a carnal life with better thoughts, but a literal, actual spirit being that has never been before, that is the very first time, utterly unique, and never will be again. That is your one opportunity. That little tender, delicate babe in Christ, that newly begotten spirit being inside the frontal lobes of your brain must make it into the kingdom of God because there won't ever be another chance. You just have that one chance. Everybody receives a chance. A chance is a chance is a chance. As I've said time and again, little Chinese and Vietnamese babies don't have a chance. And hundreds of millions, if not billions of human beings have never had a chance, but they will all have a chance because all will come to repentance and salvation. I don't know that I believe in universal salvation, but I certainly think that given the witness of God's great power and during the millennium and during the great white throne judgment, probably 90 some percent of the human race is going to eventually be saved. There will be a small percentage who will be the incorrigible wicked who will bow up and they will reject God and rebel against God right to the bitter end. But most will not. Nobody says you have received the spirit of sonship whereby we cry Abba, which is the untranslated Hebrew that means father. We cry Abba, father. When I said to my father, daddy, When I was a little boy of five or six, if I went and crawled in bed in the middle of a thunderstorm because my parents were comforting to me, that's because he was my dad, my father. Jesus said, when you pray, say, Our Father which art in heaven. It's not merely a title. It is a fact. You become a child of space, a child of the universe, a child of God, a new spiritual creation, a new spirit being. And you, as that little tender child of God, Cry out, Father, because He is now your spiritual Father. The churches of this world do not know this. It just as plain, it just leaps off the page of the Bible, It's as plain as the nose on your face. But they don't know it, they don't preach it, and don't understand it, because they have accepted the idea of the Trinity. It goes on to say now, verse 16, The Spirit itself, notice that language, The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So, my father bears witness with my mother that I am a child of my dad, and I look a great deal like him, and I have a lot of his proclivities and a lot of his various talents and abilities and a lot of things that he bequeathed to me. And so it is that we, when we are begotten of God, are to become a child of God. There are so many scriptures I could read you that we're to become partakers of the divine nature. But I must hurry now to conclude this. And I want to turn to 2 Corinthians, the 5th chapter, in 2 Corinthians, chapter 5. And he says... In verse 1, we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. This is our new spirit body He's talking about. In verse 2, in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house. That's why Christ said in my Father's house are many abodes, many mansions, like little houses or places. about the heavenly mansions. Well, it's not a mansion so much as it's a house, clothed upon, which is from heaven. If being clothed, we shall not be found naked. We that are in this tabernacle, that is, we, the new creature in Christ, in a human physical tabernacle, do groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now notice verse 17 to conclude. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, He is a new creature, a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. There is a great deal more to learn. And when you have received God's Holy Spirit, it will be an experience like you've been kneeling in front of a keyhole, peering through a door, and someone just flung open the door, so far as the Word of God is concerned and the plan of God. You will understand a great deal more. But if you will review, maybe several times if you need to, this three-part series of Bible studies into repent, be baptized, and you shall receive the Holy Spirit, then by all means get on your knees and make the decision and ask a servant, a minister, a representative of God, of God's church, to baptize you and to become a new creature in Jesus Christ and a child of God Almighty, a child of space. God bless you. I know you'll make the right choice.